This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Us, uh, help us through the lecture today. And um, let me just set up a few other things here and then we'll and then we'll begin. Right. Uh, so the title of the lecture today is What Does It Mean to Be a Man? Uh, the answer to that question has eluded me for a long time, but um, I'm pleased to say that we will all leave today with an answer to the question. Uh, not the answer, not the only answer, not a comprehensive answer, uh, but an answer that I think uh, is foundational for everything else that we can say about the question, what does it mean to be a man? Now, to some, this answer might seem so obvious as to be a letdown, so I apologize in advance. For others, aspects of the answer will feel uncomfortable as it offers a contrast to some widely held notions about sex and gender. So be aware that I intend no offense today and that I'm open to questions and challenge in the discussion time that we have um, afterward, uh, where I hope you'll walk up to the screen um, like Joshua was doing so that I can so that I can hear your question. I should also say uh, that I, I am also not setting myself up as the answer to the question, what does it mean to be a man? Uh, the answer the answer I will offer today is a helpful challenge to me, and it's something that I'm seeking to grow into as I live life as a man. And I hope that the answer will be helpful to you, too. For many years, the answer I'm going to offer today was veiled from my eyes. Once I saw it, I felt liberated. But the veil was kind of drawn by two cultural forces that have been at work in my experience. Two cultural forces that kind of drew a veil across the answer I'm going to give today. The first one was the ecosystem of progressive values in which we live. So the idea that men and women are different is increasingly rejected in polite society. And there are many reasons for this. A key reason is that there have been tremendous gains for women in society over the past 50 years. And once you start talking about differences between men and women, you immediately run the danger of creating a hierarchy that would endanger those gains. So under this understanding, what does it mean to be a man? Well, it's best not to talk about it. But if you are a man, however, just try not to be evil. And remember that the future is female. So that's the first reason and that the answer to the question was veiled for me, a progressive cultural environment insisting that men and women are basically identical. But the answer was also veiled for me by the conservative Christian environment that I've lived in and around for most of my life. So if progressive culture often downplays the differences between men and women, many evangelical Christian contexts overplay those differences. 
And the key difference in many of these contexts is one of roles. So broadly, in this understanding, the role of men is to initiate. And the role of women is to respond. And human flourishing is a matter of male authority and female submission to that authority when the authority has shown itself to be worthy. So under this understanding, what does it mean to be a man? It means playing your role as a masculine male. But the word role does not come from scripture, and it does not come from Christian tradition. It comes from the theater. When you play a role, you are acting as something or someone other than what you are. Uh, when I was 18, I played the Frog Prince in a uh, production at my high school, and I wore a horrific green unitard. Um, I am neither a frog nor a prince. But I was playing the role of one, um, in that, in that horrible, horrible moment. Um, so in, in all this talk about male roles, I, I've wanted to know who I actually am as a man. I'm tired of roles. I want to know about reality. So both of these voices, the progressive secular one and the conservative Christian one, kept me from hearing the answer that I hope to build for you in the next maybe 40 minutes or so. So let's begin. What does it mean to be a man? Before we can speculate about the meaning of manhood, we first have to answer um, the question, what is a man? So I'm going to try to do that first before looking at what it means to be a man. So let's go with that first question. What is a man? There are two common ways to answer this question kind of on the street. In academia, it's a different question. We can talk about that in the Q&A if you want to. But on the street, you get two different answers to this question, basically. The first answer is to collapse the answer into common stereotypes. So here's one version of that. You've probably heard something like this. Um, unlike women, uh, who are naturally more humble and emotional, men are assertive and rational. Uh, men enjoy sporting events and power tools, expeditions into the wild, action films, and eating copious amounts of meat. All of these just kind of stereotypical things that you hear. Um, and it sounds funny, but the reality is that in certain contexts, men who don't enjoy some or all of these things are considered somehow less than a man. And when judgments like this are made, it beguiles a belief that these stereotypical actions and attitudes define what a man is, at least in the popular imagination. So that's that's one way you can collapse the answer, what is a man, into these common stereotypes. But there is a second way that a question is answered kind of on the street. And I ask you to forgive me in advance if this sounds crass. Uh, what is a man? A man is the type of person who has a penis. Now you find this answer given by both tr more traditionalist people and by progressives as well. So to people of a more traditional disposition, it is, it is just obvious. The penis makes the man and don't try to convince us otherwise. And we've all heard jokes um, about the size of a guy's manhood. And these jokes that every man has heard at some point in his life 
um, can beguile an assumption that sounds laughable, but that can easily capture the male and female imagination. Mainly, the bigger the penis, the bigger the man. Sounds absurd, but it is there in the imagination. That's on what you might call the traditionalist side. But then on the progressive side, there is now a common assumption that a woman can become a man with a surgery called a phalloplasty. And this is called sexual reassignment. And it assumes that becoming a man is a matter of constructing a penis and adding it onto an otherwise neutral body. So in both cases, the question, what is a man, is answered by genitalia. And to my mind, both of these answers are just preoccupied with outward appearance in a way that obscures any kind of helpful definition of what a man is. So I've been looking for a more satisfying answer to the question, what is a man, that doesn't reduce a man to stereotypes and that doesn't reduce a man to genitalia. And as a Christian, the Bible has helped me with that answer, particularly the first few pages of the Bible. So that is where I'm going to go to build a, def a definition today. So the opening chapters of Genesis are the Bible's first word about humanity. They find endorsement from Jesus in his own teaching in the Gospels, Matthew 19, Mark 10. So they're an important place to start for a Christian understanding of maleness. We find two creation accounts in Genesis, one in chapter 1, the other in chapter 2. Um, these are not contradictory. They simply look at the same event with two different lenses, one with a kind of wide-angle lens and the other with a zoom lens. So I want us to look at both in turn, um, seeing what they teach us about what a man is. So the first chapter of Genesis is the wide-angle view of creation. It is a God's-eye view. It emphasizes God's transcendence as the creator who speaks, and it is done. So before God speaks, the world is without form and void, we are told. And because it is without form, on days one, two, and three, God forms the heavens and the earth. Then because the world is void, on days four, five, and six, God fills the heavens and the earth with their host. And you can see the harmony between days 1 to 3 and days 4 to 6 brilliantly by making columns of 1 to 3 and then 4 to 6, then matching them together. And if you do this, you will realize that God forms the earth on day 3 and then fills it on day 6. And this, day 6, is where we meet human beings for the first time as part of this harmonious cosmos that God has created. Um, I have here on the screen two images. Um, they're actually tapestries that are around ooh, uh, probably 10 feet tall and maybe more than six uh, six feet wide. Um, and there's an exhibition of 12 of these tapestries going around cathedrals in England. It's called Threads Through Creation by an artist called Jackie Parkinson. Um, if my, if my girls stood in front of these tapestries, they'd barely go up to like right there. <laughs> so they're just huge, overwhelming, beautiful tapestries filled with intricate detail. I've never seen anything that so vividly captures, um, the wildness and the beauty of, of the Genesis accounts. So I'll throw a few of those in tonight. So there you have day three and day six, uh, when the, uh, the earth is formed and when it is filled. 
So jumping into Genesis, I'm going to use a translation tonight um, by one of the world's, well, maybe the world's foremost translator of the Old Testament, a Jewish scholar named Robert Alter. Um, Alter gets some important things right, I think. Plus, hearing an unfamiliar translation can help those of us for whom a passage like this has become all too familiar. So listen to Genesis 1, 26 to 28, as the narrative builds to the creation of human beings. And God said, let us make a human in our image, by our likeness, to hold sway over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the heavens and the cattle and the wild beasts and all the crawling things that crawl upon the earth. And God created the human in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what is a man? We don't have a specific answer yet, because here, in this wide-angle view, we see male and female together as the human. But this contributes to our answer. We find here that men and women are creatures made in the image of God, our Creator. And this bestows equal dignity on every human person, male and female. Equal dignity, male and female. That's what we find. But with this equal dignity, we also find significant difference. Significant difference. There are two ways of being a human person. Two ways to bear the image of God. Male and female. Equal dignity. Significant difference. And both of these concepts have to be held together. Because this is what the image of God in humanity implies. The philosopher Prudence Allen has written three massive volumes over the course of 30 years. What? Can... We're good. Okay, I'm back? Yeah. Okay. So, there's a philosopher named Prudence Allen, and she's written three massive volumes called The Concept of Woman um, over the course of 30 years. And she goes from 750 B.C. up to the present, and she traces the concept of woman in philosophy and theology throughout that time. I have not read Prudence Allen's uh, 1,768-page project. Joshua, have you? No. <laughs> I, I have the I read at the beginning of one of them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. hi, hi, Marty. Nice to hear your voice. Um. So, yeah, I, I haven't read this, but I have read... Um, a very handy 21-page summary that she wrote um, of her of her project, um, and she begins by making a striking statement um, in 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 this essay that summarizes her project. She says, "Every time man-woman relations moved out of balance in Western thought or practice, someone, a philosopher and or a theologian, responding to a deep source of Christian inspiration." sought ways to bring the balance back. What do I mean by out of balance? When one of the two, when one of two fundamental principles of gender relation, equal dignity and significant difference, is missing from the respective identities of man and woman, the balance of a complementarity disappears into either a polarity or unisex theory. Lots of words there, but really important to understand. 
The Genesis vision is one of equal dignity and significant difference that avoids concepts of gender uniformity or polarity. So what we have in Genesis is not a vision of uniformity, a unisex vision where men and women are basically the same, because it is male and female that God created them. We are not collapsed into one kind of undifferentiated creature. But it's also not a picture of polarity, with male and female being contrary or opposite to one another. Because when this happens, a hierarchy is inevitably created with men on the top and women on the bottom, or vice versa. But we don't find a hint of hierarchy in Genesis chapter 1. What we do find is equal dignity and significant difference. And I would argue that it should be the goal of all Christians to rigorously hold these two things together in the face of cultures which will always want us to choose just one. Um, cultures outside the church and perhaps even inside the church too. Equal dignity and significant difference. Because in Genesis, we do not find the uniformity of male and female, but neither do we find a polarity. There is a complementarity. There is two ways to be human, two ways to bear the image of God in the world and engage in the great vocation of cultivating the life of the world. Both ways, male and female, are declared good by the Creator. That's what we have when we come to Genesis 1. So, what is a man? So far, we see that a man is a human being created in the image of God who bears that image together with woman. That's what we see from the wide-angle creation account. But when we zoom in, more details emerge. So the second chapter of Genesis is the zoom lens view of creation. It zooms in primarily on the creation of humanity. And what we saw almost in passing in Genesis 1 is given a fuller treatment here, especially when God, quote unquote, gets his hands dirty in Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord, the Lord God fashioned the human, humus from the soil and blew into his nostrils the breath of life and the human became a living creature. So from Genesis 1, we concluded that men and women are human beings created in the image of God. But in Genesis 2, we see with greater, greater clarity how the human being is constituted. Here we find that we are creatures of earth and breath, matter and spirit. All human persons are a unity of body and spirit. And that means that our bodies reveal that we are more than our bodies. We are physical beings enlivened by God's breath. But what exactly is God creating here? Is it really a man that we're seeing? A man like me or Joshua or Dick? That's what English translations usually make us think. Then the Lord God formed the man. But Robert Alter's translation captures the Hebrew much better. Then the Lord God fashioned the human, humus from the soil. Soil in Hebrew is Adamah, and the human here is Adam. It's a pun, elegantly captured by Robert Alter in this translation. I was talking about some of these things in Holland um, last weekend, and uh, a Dutch person afterward was remarking how they don't have anything like this in Dutch as far as a, a, a pun that you could use in the language to describe this human and humus. Um, the creature given life here is simply a human, a soil creature made by God. 
So even as we're using the pronouns he, him, up to this point in Genesis 2, we haven't properly met a man yet. That'll be a different word introduced later in the chapter. We have to wait. But the human here represents all of humanity. And it is all of humanity, we creatures of the soil, who are given responsibility for working and keeping the garden, for stewarding the earth, and for faithfully listening to the voice of God. So, after this soil creature's creation, we encounter something quite unexpected. We've grown accustomed to hearing it is good from God after all the creative acts in chapter 1, seven times. It is good, 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 it is good. But then we come to Genesis 2, 18 to 20. And it says this. And the Lord God said, it is not good for the human to be alone. I shall make him a sustainer beside him. And the Lord God fashioned from the soil each beast of the field and each fowl of the heavens and brought each to the human to see what he would call it. And whatever the human called a living creature, that was its name. And the human called names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the heavens and to all the beasts of the field. But for the human, no sustainer beside him was found. Now here we call, here we find what one theologian calls the problem of original solitude. The problem of original solitude. It is not good that the human is alone. It is not good that there is just one soil creature. And this is a problem we didn't encounter in Genesis 1. In the wide-angle creation account, we already saw the kind of the duality of male and female in the image of God. But here we don't see it. And we are faced with this problem of original solitude. So God sets out to show the creature the reality of the problem. And this is one of the deep meanings of the parade of animals that you see in this passage. Are any of these creatures the sustainer? No, not the monkey, not the slug, not the parrot, not the dog. And there are amazing revelations here for the soil creature. As one theologian puts it, by naming every other living creature, the human discovers what he is not, but still wonders what he is. So the human does not identify with any of the animals. The soil creature is an animal, but he's an animal capable of language and moral sense. The other animals don't have that. And so you have here the soil creature, the human, humus from the soil, realizing that he is different from all the other creatures in that he is a person. And for the human, no sustainer beside him was found. And so, God does something quite remarkable in verses 21 to 23. And the Lord God cast a deep slumber on the human, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed over the flesh where it had been. And the Lord God built the rib he had taken from the human into a woman, and he brought her to the human. And the human said, This one at last. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for from man was this one taken. So these verses are the culmination of creation and the crowning glory of both Genesis accounts. What causes this ecstatic eruption from the man is not the reality that the two of them are made in the image of God 
as in Genesis 1, glorious though that reality was. All the animals paraded before the soil creature in verses 18 to 20 were bodies, but not persons. But here, for the first time, is a body that expresses a person like him. The problem of original solitude has been overcome. And as the soil creature cries out in praise, we as Bible readers make an important discovery. Mainly, this is the first time that the words woman and man are used in the Bible. They are different words from the soil creature referred to before. They are man and woman for the first time right here in this, in this acclamation, ish and isha in the original Hebrew. Man and woman are revealed at this moment, the moment of their meeting. So the meeting of man and woman, I think, provides us with the most important key for answering the question, what is a man? And indeed, what is a woman? But that's not my question tonight. Um, the key is this. The body reveals the person. The body reveals the person. Why? Because this one at last, the man cries out. What he sees when he looks at her reveals who she is as woman. And no doubt she recognizes it the other way around. The problem of original solitude is now solved because here is a person with whom the man can know an original unity. And it is that unity that the man and woman are immediately called to in verse 24. Therefore, does a man leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife? and they become one flesh. And the fruit of this unity is also voiced in the first creation account in Genesis 1, 28. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So to help draw things together so far and bring me to a definition for what is a man, I want to introduce you to a book um, called The Genesis of Gender by Abigail Favale. It is the most helpful book that I have read on this topic from a Christian point of view. Mainly, it's it, well, it is very well written, but mainly because the author has such a broad experience. So she was raised um, within an evangelicalism that very much emphasized gender roles, very strict concept of, of gender roles and hierarchy with men on the top and women below. Um and that so turned her off that she went and did a gender studies PhD um, and became an atheist or agnostic for a while. But then she came back to Christianity through the door of the Catholic Church um, a few years ago. So she is a Roman Catholic and I'm not. So I have a few quibbles here and there. But her ex the breadth of her experience um, has made her very well poised to write a book like this. And I find it a uniquely helpful uh, book in this regard. So I want to quote from two paragraphs that will move us into answering this question, uh, what does it mean to be a man? And hopefully you can follow along on the screen here. This is what Favali says. It is not good for the human to be alone. This lacuna, or empty space, in the created order is mended not by the formation of more generic human beings or by male bonding, but by sexual differentiation. Sexual difference is a particular kind of difference because it is a difference that is arranged purposefully 
to correspond to the difference of the other. We are not talking about superficial differences here, like hair or eye color. We are talking about a body that is designed to fit another kind of body in an entirely unique way. Maleness points toward femaleness, and vice versa. Our sexed body signals in, in our inherent capacity and need for interpersonal communion. There are all kinds of differences among human beings. Differences in size, temperament, gifts, complexion. These differences can help create fruitful and vibrant relationships and communities. Only sexual difference, however, is capable of bringing another human being into existence. The one flesh union between man and woman is not exclusive, facing inward and closed off to others. Rather, it is expansive and open, because this union alone has the potential to create new life. Communion and procreation. This is the twofold potential that is recognized and celebrated in the Genesis text through the man's cry of wonder. So, this twofold potential for communion and procreation has been deeply illuminating to me, and it's here that Favale and the thinkers that she's building on have helped move me toward an answer to what is a man that is rooted in the body. Specifically, so, this sorry, answer is... We lost your... I'm trying to connect you to the... Oh. Um, the speaker. For some reason, you... The Bluetooth shut, shut off for some reason. Oh, okay. I can, uh, just tell me, no. tell me when to talk I'm so again. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just, it lost. It's no longer okay, on the speaker. Okay, I'll let you do it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what I'm doing. Worst comes to worst. Um, is it? I'll turn it off and turn it on. Okay, hang on. I might go uh, get a tissue and then come back. Perfect. Do it. It was on there. Did that just happen? Yeah, it just all of a sudden oh. was like, nope. It's on. It is? Yep. Okay, great. It's Libri. Okay. You're back on, Philip. Okay. Okay. Um, did I cut out in the middle of that quote? No, no, we could, no, we could hear you. You just went from the speaker to the speaker on the laptop, so we could still hear okay. you. Okay. Yeah. Great. Okay. So in that quote, um, Abigail Favale talks about this twofold potential for communion and procreation, and that's been very illuminating to me. And it's here that she and the thinkers she's building on have helped move me toward an answer to what is a man that is rooted in the body. Specifically, this answer is rooted in the key difference between men and women. And not only the difference, but the telos or the goal of that difference. So here is the definition I've come to. What is a man? A man 
is the kind of human being whose body is organized around the potential to transmit new life. A man man is the kind of human being whose body is organized around the potential to transmit new life. And this places the potential for fatherhood at the center of what it means to be a man. Let's notice what this definition does not do. First, it does not reduce a man to cultural stereotypes. This should be obvious. Always and everywhere, the male body has had the potential for fatherhood. But it also does not reduce a man to genitalia. It defines a man according to the totalizing structure of the body as a whole, to quote Favali again, not just the genitals, not just what the genitals look like, but the totalizing structure of the body as a whole. Being a man is more than possessing a penis. It is being a person with a body organized around the potential for fatherhood. This potentiality that belongs to maleness is always present, even if there's some kind of condition age or disease that prevents that potential from being actualized in the moment. Men who never become fathers are still fully men because of the potentiality for fatherhood around which their bodies are organized. So a man is the kind of human being whose body is organized around the potential to transmit new life. Men are potentially, fathers. Now, the answer to this question is that I've given is rooted in the body, but it's also important that we do not reduce it to the body. Remember that human beings are a unity of body and spirit, dust of the earth and breath of God. That means that our bodies point beyond themselves to the deep spiritual, that is unseen, reality of our human personhood reflecting the image of the God who breathed life into us. And that means that the male potential to transmit new life points to a deeper spiritual reality. What can we say about that? It's here where I become quite nervous um, about going further. Um, probably because I spent a lot of time listening to Marty Kai's. Um <laughs> I'm, I'm personally, con- although Marty, I don't know what you'll think of this. We'll see, we'll see how it goes. Um, I'm personally convinced that any attempt to describe this is a matter of speculation, um, that can very quickly be adorned with cultural stereotypes to form a description of what every man is and must be. I don't want to make any attempt to strip away the mystery of our sexed embodiment. Um, a mystery that will only be fully revealed when we see God face to face. So I'm confident in the definition I've offered so far for what a man is. I'm also fairly confident that, confident that this definition somehow ushers us into the meaning of manhood. But I'm not confident or sufficient to unveil the deep mystery behind it at this point in my life or understanding. I'm only 35 years old, for goodness sake. Um, that's why the rest of this lecture won't be offered with a tone of confidence or certainty. Instead, uh, we're going to enter into some what-if territory. What-if territory, um, to engage in what I hope is some healthy speculation. 
and I hope that this what-if exercise will give you something to chew on when it comes to this topic, whether you are a man or a woman. So let's enter for the next 20 or so minutes into what-if mode about the question, what does it mean to be a man? So one of the most helpful commentators currently writing about men is Richard Reeves, author of 2022 book titled Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why it Matters, and What to Do About It. At the moment, Of Boys and Men is widely considered the most up-to-date summary of the condition of men in the West, even though he focuses on the United States. And Reeves has recently started the American Institute for Boys and Men, a new organization with a mission to research and raise awareness of the problems of boys and men and advocate for effective solutions. So Reeves is a policy analyst, so his great strength is in marshalling facts and figures. But recently, his reflections have taken a more personal turn. He is a father of three, and he has great admiration for his own father. And he recently wrote an essay for Comment magazine called What Men Are For?, where he contrasts the relational masculinity he experienced from his own father with what he calls Lone Ranger masculinity. I think there's a cop, there's a copy of this uh, magazine of comments sitting around somewhere there, right? Yes. Um, so Lone Ranger masculinity, Reeves says, is a masculine archetype that is especially salient in America. Um, but I think that it can present, it can present itself wherever men are found in the modern world. So as Reeves describes it, Lone Ranger masculinity is a concept of being a man in which manhood is defined by fierce independence, even to the point of isolation. To discover oneself and step into adulthood, a man has to shake himself loose of social ties. It's Henry David Thoreau in his cabin, which you can go see around 30 minutes away in Concord. Uh, it is the frontiersman riding alone, the cowboy out on the range, the astronaut alone in the vastness of space. It's almost every role played by Kevin Costner, except for the untouchables. That's not such a bad one. Lone Ranger masculinity rests on the assumption that in a state of nature, men would be wild and free. Um, does this resonate with anyone? Could you, I can see your hands if you, does this sound like a, a thing in your experience? I see a few nods. So somewhere in the cultural imagination, Reeves suggests, is the idea that men are more themselves when they are by themselves. This idea that men are more themselves when they are by themselves. It is a man doing his own thing, going his own way, a man who is his own man. And this isolation can sometimes be envisioned as a positive thing, with the Lone Ranger being a goal to strive toward even. But Reeves' description has also made me think about how many men I've known in my life who are simply checked out of life, spending most of their free hours off by themselves, away from their families, and away from other relational connections. It's made me think of my own capacity to avoid relationship or my tendency to daydream about how great it would be um, to be reading a book alone when I'm supposed to be playing with my children. Um, in my experience, women do not check out relationally like this 
as much as men do. Do not check out relationally as much as, as, as much as men do in this way. There is a capacity for otherness in men. A capacity for otherness in men that can very easily lead us to isolation. And this can be a source of great weakness and alienation. But what if this capacity for otherness can also be a source of great strength and virtue? What if this capacity for otherness is intimately related to who men are as human persons whose bodily structure, the potential for fatherhood, reveals something about the God in whose image we are made. What if? So, what is a father? For a Christian answer to this question, we must begin with God. After all, the New Testament declares to us that God is the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And yet, God is not male. The Children's Catechism says it best. Um, what is God? I was taught as a child. God is a spirit and has not a body like men. <laughs> um, interestingly, it didn't say has not a body like man it, with that old, like, inclusive term for everyone. It was God is a spirit and has not a body like men. <laughs> All human beings, male and female, bear God's image and reflect God's image in their maleness and their femaleness. But is there a way in which men, in their potential for fatherhood, reflect the image of the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named in a unique way? This is what many voices in the Christian tradition have suggested. One of the key voices in the 20th century was Pope John Paul II in his landmark theology of the body. Um, and in that work, John Paul offers the terms feminine genius and masculine genius to describe the spiritual implications of our biological differences. Spiritual implications of our biological differences. These two geniuses are not polar opposites, but rather two ways of enacting and embodying the love of God in whose image we are made. So this is what, um, this is what John Paul says, and this is a summary of, uh, of his, uh, of his, um, thought on this. F the female body is designed with an inherent potential to engender new life within. The human person has been entrusted to woman in a uniquely intimate and immediate way. Woman's genius is to be particularly attentive to the human person in whatever her realm of influence. The male body carries the potential to engender life outside of himself. A man must make a willful act to accept and protect a woman and her child. He must choose to cross the distance that lies between himself and the vulnerable other to reach out in love. What might this masculine genius in that second paragraph have to do with God? 
Think of it like this. God created everything that is and gave life to an entire cosmos outside of himself. God is wholly, completely other from creation. Theologians talk about how there is an absolute boundary of being between God and the world God has made. They also speak about the transcendence of God to describe this reality. But does the transcendence of God mean that God is uninterested, unconcerned, or uninvolved with the life of the world? By no means. If we allow the Bible to shape our understanding of God, we find that God is never more himself than when he is going out of himself in love. To quote Kevin Van Hooser, God is never more himself than when he is going out of himself in love. It is by virtue of being other that God invites created humanity into intimate union with himself. So in the God of the Bible, we see an otherness that is not content to remain separate, but that chooses to cross the distance chooses to move toward the other in love with the intention of establishing communion. As the prophet Isaiah 43.1 once declared, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, good luck out there on your own. No. He says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. What if men, in their potential for fatherhood, have been created to image this aspect of God's being in a unique way? This otherness that must not be content to remain separate, but that crosses the distance, moving toward the other in love, with the hope of establishing communion. After all, a father is a being who creates and gives life outside of himself. There is a physical distance, a transcendence between himself and his offspring from the very beginning. But if we're talking about reflecting the image of God, this distance and transcendence does not and should not mean that the man is uninterested, unconcerned, or uninvolved in the life of the child. On the contrary, and in the words of a theologian named Peter Holmes, perhaps the father provides an analogous external reference point which draws the child to communion, to step outside of the child's selfish and comfortable surroundings, and simultaneously provides an image, example, and proof of God's intimate and personal care for his creation. I'll read that thought again in a moment, but it's interesting to take that thought and to map it on to sociological research about fathers. The American sociologist Bradford Wilcox has written a book called Gender and Parenthood, Biological and Social Scientific Perspectives, and he and his co-authors discuss four unique ways that fathers contribute to the lives of their children. So one of them is that fathers play uniquely, especially the type of rough and tumble play that teaches kids how to control their bodies. I never thought I would do this kind of play with my children because I am not a rough and tumble person, but apparently I do, if you ask my wife. Um, I didn't intend to, 
but it happens. <laughs> Weird. Um, so fathers play uniquely. And second, fathers foster independence. And he says that whereas mothers are more likely to offer support and security first, fathers encourage risk-taking and embracing the new. And he quotes the swim lesson study where fathers tended to stand behind their children so the children face their social environment, whereas mothers tend to position themselves in front of their children seeking to establish like visual contact with the children. Interesting. Third is that fathers protect against bad influences and predators. Not that mothers don't, but he quotes some interesting statistics like teenage girls who are, uh, who are more likely to avoid a teen pregnancy when they have an engaged father. And fourth, fathers discipline distinctly. They are, <coughs> they are more likely to hold their children to a clear standard, to be sticklers for family rules, and to take an authoritative posture with their children. Listen to the quote by Peter Holmes that I just read before that. He says, What if the father provides an external reference point which draws the child to communion, which draws the child to step outside of the child's selfish and comfortable surroundings and simultaneously provides an image, example, and proof of God's intimate and personal care for his creation. Holmes continues, If we can propose this kind of imaging, it would not suppose emotional or physical difference from the child, sorry, emotional or physical distance from the child or the mother. It would instead engage a father in the same level of knowledge of the pain of his family, his ear keenly attuned to their cry in need, and his determination and effort in fulfilling the covenant he made with his bride at the wedding altar. The otherness of men can and often does lead to selfish or despairing isolation, to the lone ranger mentality or to the lone consumer mentality. But can you see how this otherness might indicate a unique capacity for moving toward the other in love with the hope of establishing relationship and communion, a capacity and calling to cross that distance. This is, of course, not just a male calling, but a female calling too. We are all selves in a world of others, and the calling of humanity within a Christian view of reality is to move toward the other with self-giving love. But what if men feel the distance between self and other more keenly than women? And what if that felt distance, which can so often lead us to check out, is actually meant to propel us toward the other rather than away? What if men have been created to image what it looks like to cross the distance between self and other in a way that reveals to other men, to women, and to children something of the Father? from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, the relationship between a man, his wife, and their children is the clearest example of this. It's the sphere in which the majority of men throughout history have realized this possible meaning of their masculinity. But it is by no means the only place 
if the potential for fatherhood points beyond itself to a deeper spiritual reality, then we're talking here about a relational insight that suffuses all of life, not just biological fatherhood. So the question then becomes, what do we as men do with the felt distance from others that we feel? What do we as men do with the felt distance from others that we feel? And the answer is that we strive to do what God does. We elect an object of love, choosing a focus for our attention. This might be a spouse, but it also might be our community, our church, our friends, our workmates. We elect that this specific person or persons will be our object of love. And then we cross the distance. We we then seek the good of that object of love. And we hope that that object of love will flourish and come to share in the love that we've offered them. The world erects many barriers to this for men. Our own sin and selfishness as men provide even more barriers. And in the process, we might be hurt and hurt others. We need to be ready to say we're sorry and even ready to back away when the love we've we've sought to show is not reciprocated or desired. We have all known men whose way of crossing the distance between self and other has been invasive and not at all mindful of the other's good or their consent. But this does not mean that the calling to cross the distance has been rescinded. It does not mean that the Lone Ranger is the meaning of our masculinity. Despite all disappointments, we are still made in the image of God. And if that is true, we are never more ourselves, never more manly than we are going, than when we are going out of ourselves in love, seeking the good of others. I want to draw us to a conclusion um, by sharing one more quotation and a painting. We were in Holland last week. So here is a, a Van Gogh or a Van Gogh, as they say over there and over here in England. I can't quite get myself to do that yet, though. Um, this is uh, the painting is called The First Step. Um, it's an earlier painting of, of Van Gogh, I think. And it was um, made after a painting by Millet. Um, he did a lot of um, paintings that were um, after um, the paintings of Millet in that period in his career. So let me draw us to conclusion with some more words from the theologian Peter Holmes, um, whose PhD on masculinity has been helpful to me as I've been thinking about these things. And I just need to, I'm going to find the quotation here. He says, a man who looks for the good in others wonders at its goodness and seeks to address any lack therein, finds fulfillment in giving of himself to selflessly serve another's good. This is not limited to a general sense of justice and being generally committed to respecting the rights and goods of others. A man's limitations, his finite nature, 
mean that attempting to make himself a gift to all would be impossible. One person attempting a total gift of self to all people, even if limited to all people he was capable of interacting with in his short life, would result in a general and limited kind of intimacy. What if in masculinity at its best, we find a love that is attracted to a specific good, a specific situation, and which arouses a desire in him to see the good free from evil and to see good flourishing in itself, not for his own gratification, but out of commitment to seeing its goodness flourish in its own right and for its own sake. This seeking aspect of love is a proper and good element of true love. Every human being is wanted and desired by God, who also desires good for each one he has created. The specificity of God's love is not a generic benevolence, but a love that actively seeks out its object and passionately engages with specific persons and with the smallest part of his creation. There seems to be an obvious application of this aspect of masculine desire, this joyful wonder that eagerly seeks to know, guard, and enhance the beauty it finds, which might be applied to all areas of a man's life. His desire can extend to particular goods in the world, and often does, not just his fatherly concern, but his specific and focused desire for that particular good to flourish. So, a man is the kind of human being whose body is organized around the potential to transmit new life. What if this bodily potential for fatherhood reveals a deeper spiritual capacity and calling to cross the distance between self and other in order to establish communion. What if? These are speculations, hopefully healthy ones. You might not buy them, uh, but I hope they will lead us into deeper reflections about the meaning of maleness and for the possibilities of uh, masculinity in our time. And uh, if you are a man, let's strive together to not be lone rangers but to cross the distance between ourselves and others and to seek the good of the other. I, I think it's what we were made for. So that's what I have for you today. Um, I'd be interested to know your thoughts and to, uh, yeah, to be interested to know what questions or ideas you might have, um, having, having listened to that. Stand in front of him. Welcome to the masculine jury. And then, uh, we'll get to the camera. <laughs> By gazing into your eyes, if I look right here, Philip. You're going to see. Yes, yeah, that, hi, hi, Ben. Um, <laughs> hey, Philip, how you doing? Yes, are, have you stepped up to the masculine journey? I, I don't know what that means, but I. The book on the floor. That's your mark. That's your mark. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My goodness, look at that. Okay. Yeah, that was, uh, that was the joke. I get it now. Um, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Uh, a lot of really, really helpful um, thoughts. I guess uh, a question that I have um, 
is so many of the things that you describe, I think, yes, like more, more men should strive to be like that. More men should be not lone rangers, but more aware of the other and, and, uh, eager to, to, um, to cross the distance. I like that language. Um, but I guess what I'm, what I'm wondering is how, how does that specifically differ from, from what a woman is called to? Um, because so much of that is describing really what an image bearer of God should be doing regardless of their sex. Um, yeah. and it is, is the specific difference. It seems to me that, um, the, the difference that, that you presented was the, the tendency of men to feel the distance more. And so in a sense, there's just mm. more, of, more of an obstacle naturally to men doing that, um, than, than maybe women. Um, and I, and I don't know that that seems like a negative thing, but I, <laughs> um, how, how does it make us, how does it, whatever you said, how is it true of, of men in a way that is not true of them? I guess, I guess, and I know you're not talking about yeah. women's night, but, um, you know. I guess I, I, I wouldn't want to frame what I, what I've said li- like that. Although it's easy to, um, what I've been captured by both in my observations of men throughout my life, my observations of myself and just living so far is, is that that otherness that can so easily lead us to check out is a re is a real thing. It's not that it's not a thing for women. Um, I think that in women it often takes different forms. Um, I, but I think that what, what Reeves describes in that essay is a very real thing. And, and what I'm wanting to, to notice is that what if the, what if the otherness that might be a specific temptation, even pathology of, of men is actually a specific calling um and that the 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 felt experience um of of that otherness should be telling us something different than i need to check out right now um i i think that women women i know that women experience it as, as well but i guess i'm observing the the increased um occurrence of it in uh, men i've known and in myself which has led me to these kind of what if reflections. Um, like I said, I think we're all, we're, we're all called to this. Um, but I, I just wonder if there's something about the way, the way we've been created to image of God, uh, to image God, that there's more specific aspect of this in men. And you might think that I'm going all complementarian here in some ways saying that men are the one who initiate. Um, and, I, I don't go all fully that way because I think there is more to women than just responding to men. Um, which is, um, yeah, if you, if you read a lot of complementarian literature, you see that men are the one, ones who initiate and the women are the one who, ones who respond. Um, and I don't want to buy into that disjunction. Um, I'm trying to make sense of what I see and, this is this is how I've done it so far, and I I feel the force of it. 
but I don't feel I know what it fully know what it means. So I'd appreciate if you had any reflections about it, Ben. I mean, do you see any specificity to this in some ways um, in, in your observation? Do you, do you think the increased tendency in, in us is perhaps pointing to, to something of a, of a calling? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't ask the question because I had a better answer. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, but I definitely do notice in myself what you describe and in, and lots of other men that there, that there is like a, you know, and not across the board, all men are this, no, no women are, but, but I do, I do think there's more, more of a tendency for men to be just okay with isolation, not, not feel the, the pain. Mm of isolation. Yes. Uh, you know, even though it's not good for us, we're much more uh, at ease being isolated from other people. Uh, not everybody, but I know that I am actually. I, I, yeah. I So I do recognize that, um, that tendency. And I guess, I guess if I understand you correctly, which, which you're pointing to is that, it may be, it may be a creational tendency that manifests itself in a sinful way. We notice it when we, yeah. when we see men just the lone wolf kind of off on their own. But that actually, in a creational sense, before the fall would have been a, a, capa- a special capacity that men might have to, um, yeah, to, to reach out to, this is where I, this is where I get hazy. <laughs> this is where yeah. I get talking. <laughs> because I never, I, I, yeah, and <laughs> no, I, I, I feel that deeply. And I think it's the, it's the haziness about that that I haven't been satisfied with. Yeah. And it's the, but then it's the, it's the very caricatured picture of where that leads to that I've been dissatisfied with in so many you yeah. know, in so much Christian literature that I've read. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess I'm trying to sharpen it. I remember right. actually, Marty, I think I emailed you about this before I got married, actually. Um, yeah. because I was, um, I was really struggling with some of these questions and, um, yeah, you, you were very helpful in, in, in saying that in basically encouraging me not to push, not to push, push further into the meaning of all this and to be, and to be satisfied with the mystery, which is a, which is an impulse that I, I have because I, I've seen the damage of perspectives that go too far into this. But I, I find my own heart yearning for something more. Um, not, not for the, you know, not for the big Piper Gruden blue book. Um, but for, <laughs> Um, but, but for something a bit more than what I'm, uh, yeah, that's what I, I find myself bending toward. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, hi, Philip. Hi. <laughs> I'm good to hear you. Yeah. I, I have very much the same sort of question that Ben expressed, but I, but I, but I have another one that I just wanted okay. to mention. Just what exactly you mean by men being more other. And the reason I ask this, is, or what it, what it means that men to be the other, because historically, I mean, Simone de Beauvoir, the feminine mystique, all these things, feminism has, the whole history of feminism has critiqued human culture for treating women as the other. So it's, it's more the use mm. of that word. Women as the other. Men are the, are human, are the human, and women are the other. And the other has 
has always meant historically um, subservient, less less human. So it's it's really just how I love clarification of what you mean by men as being more other than than women. Again, because that that, uh, yeah. word, that phrase has been used so totally differently. And yes, you know, for as long as I yeah. Yeah, I, I guess I'm I'm not using it in that way. I think I'm using it in the perhaps in the the felt relational sense rather than in the like um, more philosophical sense or something like that. I was I was very captured by the like the Richard Reeves observation about um, men being off on off on their own and that um, being a paradigm of. Uh, a good paradigm in many men's minds. And so th- that tendency to be on the outside of things, maybe, maybe I shouldn't have used otherness and maybe it should have been maybe a, a more outside inside um, language or something like that. But no, I, I didn't, I didn't mean it in that, that way that would have kind of attached to the, to the feminist discourse. So, yeah. So that know I that I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that though. It's a good caution about using that language because it links into links into other other discourses about yeah, things. Yeah. Um, I'm very glad you are, don't want to embrace the masculinity is is initiating, femininity is responding because one of the things that so strikes me is, I mean, those are human characteristics which every normal human being. Um, initiates and responds every day. I've often challenged people to try to go for a whole day only initiating or only responding. And you'll find it's impossible. You, you initiate conversation. Yeah. You know, and, and if you can't do it for a day, you sure can't do it for longer. And <laughs> so I'm really glad that you don't want to embrace, you know, that, that kind of complementarianism. And yeah. Compliment, complementarity. I, I don't know. Anyone who doesn't, I don't know any egalitarian who doesn't believe in the complementarity of the sexes. I certainly do. Yes. It's just how the, that, how that complementarity is defined and, and, um, egalitarians have objected to it always being seen as a hierarchy. But yeah, certainly some complementarity is there in the Bible very clearly and in the human experience. Yeah. Yeah. Something that something that Prudence Allen points out, and I I was I was had not heard this language before before I read her her essay summarizing her project. She talks about the difference between um, integral complementarity and fractional complementarity, and she says that the so frac and, and I think the type of complementarianism that you're describing would be what she calls fractional, where essentially you get. Um, Man is one half, woman is one half, and you put them together and you get one. Um, so they're, they're not complete in a way without the other. They're not full people without the other. They, they complete the other. But she's talking about how actually within an, if you really stress the image of God in male and female, you find it is one whole person plus another whole person and then instead of equals, she has an arrow pointing and then uh, a three. <laughs> um, so it was, there's a synergy between men and women. 
um, that produce kind of more, more than themselves when they interact. And that's how compliment, complementarity is generative. And of course she sees that it within, you know, men and women having children, but that it's also a, uh, it's, a, it's a greater thing too. There's a synergy at work in whole people encountering one another and, um, that complementarity kind of generating more, um, a surplus in many ways. Um, so that, that's been helpful language to me because I, you know, you know, the old wild at heart stuff, it's all of that is half plus a half equals one because the, you know, a, a man needs an adventure and a woman wants someone to come after, come after her. And then that, that equals, you know, the, the fullness of relationship, all that kind of stuff. And I, I just, I, yeah, I, I don't, don't like that. And I know you don't either. And you, you taught me not to like that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Bye, Mary Frances. Hi, Paige. I'm coming for you. Uh, <laughs> I have two questions. One is kind of a follow-up to what Ben asked. Is I'm yeah. curious about the when you talk about these sort of different these differences, and specifically thinking about the men. I'm wondering how much you think of it in terms of like being like creational or inherent versus the place of like social shaping and expectation. Um, Mm -hmm. I can speak to being a woman in the world and in the church, but I feel a heavy weight of expectation of how a woman is meant to be in relationship and be in community hmm. and that there's a lot that's sort of both pushed and then also a lot like allowed. Um, and I know that's the case for men too. I'm, I'm just wondering about, I know you don't have a way to like cleanly slice that, but I'm just, I'm just thinking about that of, of when you think about like the, this lone rangerness of men, how much of that is inherent to maleness itself versus how much has been shaped socially. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. I mean, I guess it's the classic question is, are we, how much is what I'm speaking about, about maleness socially constructed rather than, you know, just a, a reality of being male. Um, I guess I I would like to study how, this tendency that Richard Reeves highlighted and that I'm, I guess, latching onto for good or ill, um, has been displayed throughout time and, and what it would look like in different, in different cultures. Um, perhaps it's being exacerbated right now because, um, there are many, many changes about the way men live their lives that have happened over the past 150 years, um, with, um, changes in the workplace and, and many other things that there it was something Richard Reeves points out in his book is that there's, um, the social conditions for men have changed so much around uh, in the past 150 years, um, in ways that we really need to, to think about. He, he quotes, there's this amazing quote that he gives here. Um, actually, no, this is from Susan Faludi. Uh, in a book in 1999, she's a feminist scholar, and she says, the more I consider what men have lost, a useful role in public life, 
a way of earning a decent and reliable living, appreciation in the home, respectful treatment in our culture, the more it seems that men uh, of the late 20th century are falling into a status oddly similar to that of women at mid-century. Um, and so that that is huge changing social conditions. Um, so yeah, I, I would want to study more about what, um, maybe what that tendency toward otherness, um, might have looked like in other cultures. I wasn't quite understanding the, the kind of second aspect of your question with expectations. Um, could you? Yeah, I'm just thinking of something as basic as like, there's an expectation, I feel like this is, I'm painting with broad strokes here, but I think yeah. there's like an expectation in church life that women will pour themselves mm-hmm. out for the sake of others in community. And you just like, whatever that is, serving on a committee, taking food to people, um, caring for other people's children, like whatever the things are that are for the idea of like relational and community good. And I feel like those same mm. expectations are not put on men. Um, that's just a tiny example, but I, I just think that there are societal and I'm, you know, speaking as an American in 2023, but I think there's yeah. just societal expectations where the type of moving towards other that you're talking about like mm. men's reluctance to, or uh, reluctance isn't the right word, but inability or reluctance or however you want to think about do it. I think, I think society doesn't expect men to be doing those things. Like, I feel like they're let off the hook a bit in. And I, I think uh, what I'm, about? yeah. And I think everything that I'm, I guess, trying to say in that second half is that at least as Christians, there should be more of an expectation of that on on men. Yeah. Um, I, I think that the the church should be a place where men are relation deeply relationally engaged, and that I think women can help can help men with that a lot. Actually, um, I I was at a I was at a pub the other night with uh one two three other men from church. Um, one of whom I know well and two that I don't know very well. And so it was easy for the, for me to have, you know, more conversation with the one I knew well than, than with the other two guys. Um, and there was then kind of a, a, a lull in the conversation at one point. And one of the guys I didn't know well said, uh, uh, before I left the house, um, my, my wife said that we should talk about things tonight that are, are, uh, meaningful and important, um, to us and to our lives. And, uh, maybe we should do that now. <laughs> and I mean, I, I, we laugh, but that, I, I think that is, that is the synergy of complementarity <laughs> in many yeah. ways. It is per- perhaps, uh, perhaps women who are more, I, I mean, even saying it sounds like a stereotype, but I think it's true, or who are naturally more relationally engaged, um, can encourage men to, to do it better because we are created for relationship in just the same ways yeah. and, and have, and have the capacity to give in relationship and the need to receive in relationship just as much. I mean, I can, I can think of an, another example, like m- moving here um, a few years ago, I've been involved in, in my work in, in the church and Krista has, um, I mean, we had a, another child right when we arrived here 
And we came from a community where she was deeply relationally engaged for the last 10, you know, 10 years. Um, and she really felt the lack when we moved here of, you know, of engaged relationships. And I think it's, it's a lack that, um, the, it, it, it's a lack, the effects of which I experience too, but that are not as present to me, uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, one of which I think is that I'm a man. <laughs> I I don't feel the 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 need uh, the the kind of yawning <laughs> uh, ch- chasm of relational need that really fills her with sad with, that can fill her with sadness, um, and so she makes I think she makes me aware of my relational need in profound ways, so I, I which should be an encouragement uh, for me to both give and receive in relationship more, and I all that to say I I think. The church and Christian community is a place where men should should be relationally engaged, and where women shouldn't be the only ones who are who are giving in relationship, while men do the you know the, the admin and the talking up front. Um, so yeah, that's that's where I'd go. Thank you. Here's my second question, really quick. In the first yeah. part of your somewhat related, in the first part of your talk, you use the hmm. phrase several times that men and women are are significantly different. Hmm. And I'd like to know what you mean by significantly, because I think I'm bristling against that a little bit. And I think part of my bristling against it is the way that that type of idea has been used and abused, which you specifically are trying to push against. Um, yeah. I think in recent years, I've leaned more in a, a direction of like, actually men and women have much more in common than we do different. And so yeah. I would just love to get a sense from you is that when you talk about significant difference, and maybe it's just a matter of semantics, but what you mean by significant. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, the significance is basically that we have <laughs> that our bodily identity is, is different at a profound level. Um, and that when that is not recognized, um, you can get it into some danger, some dangerous territory, um, in many ways. And so I, I think that th- there is a danger to not recognize. You can say different, but I think the differences are significant. I mean, they're not, um, you know, there are other words you could choose there, I guess, but I, I think that it is a significant difference, but that has to be held together with the, the equal dignity. And, not losing sight of either of those of the equality and the difference. Um, and I think right now the cultural temptation is more to emphasize the equality and sameness rather than the, um, the, the difference. Um, and so it can be easier, I think, to think about the sameness of men and women and harder and perhaps more culturally, um, unacceptable to think about the differences, but I think the differences are, they, they, they are, they are significant. It doesn't mean we're polar opposites. It's not the polarity that I was speaking of. And what Alan was saying is that you holding those two together keeps you from um, a unisex view and a polarity view. And that's, that's what um, I think the word significant um, is trying to, to get at. Perhaps we could just say difference, maybe fundamental difference. Um, 
I don't, what do you think would be a better word? Yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm just, I think it's helpful. I mean, if you're talking, I just think it's helpful to qualify it. It's like, are we talking about biology? Are we talking about nature? Are we talking about, mm. you know, and, and again, it could be semantics. It could just be what I think of as a difference. You think of as a significant difference. I don't know, but I, I just, mm. um, yeah, when you, I think when I hear that phrase, that's pushing, that's pushing a wider gap in my mind. Yeah. And I'm comfortable with, I a hundred percent understand your point. Yeah. Holding the two things in tension and responding to our cultural moment. Um, yeah. I also think that language can, can fall off the side of the roof that you're trying to not fall off the side of. Maybe the problem is. Going yeah. To- but of course, it's a big exercise. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, my, my, my wife is six months pregnant right now and, and she is, uh, she's feeling like she feels like she's too big for six months. Um, it's a significant difference <laughs> in, in a, in a pretty, in a pretty big way. And so I guess I, that those are the kinds of things that I'm, that, that I'm seeing. Not, not, and not just the biological difference, like, um, you know, John Paul II is talking about, but that, 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 that points to, a, um, something of how we image God in different ways. Um, and image certain aspects of God's character and his being. Um, so yeah. Joshua. Are you there? I have a question, but it's all been Labrie workers. Is there a non-Labrie worker that wants to ask anything? Or I just don't want us to monopolize. So does anyone else want to step up? If not... I I, I must admit, it it is an awkward um, way of asking questions. I'm sorry. (laughs) But, uh, okay. I'll move. Okay. Uh, I just want, want, I thank you for, yeah, thank you for this work that you're doing. Um, you're thinking about this. I, I actually quite liked the reaching across to the other as a male. Yeah. I, I, it made me, it made me my mind went to a different place, but like my huh. sister-in-law was married to a man who cheated on her many times and stole money and bad dude got divorced. She's left with two kids. And she started seeing other people and she dated, she started dating this guy and very early on in the relationship, their dating relationship with this new guy, she got pregnant and hmm. he could have just cut and run. I mean, he had, you know, this was not planned and he chose to actually go across that distance and yeah. say, let's, let's work like, like let's, let's do this right. And so he, you know, uh, or he, she wasn't able to do that. She was going to carry this new life in her body yeah. for subsequent months and then care for the child for the rest of, you know, especially early on in a very intimate way that he didn't have to. He could have just left. Um, mm-hmm. and following certain culturally defined, um, visions of masculinity, he should, you know, like that's what he should have done, uh, to be a real mm-hmm. man. He, he, I don't know, he chose to reach across to, to another, like both to this, this child, uh, that eventually was born, uh, and then also, um, ch- children that weren't his biological, biological children, but were very much in need of a yeah. father. 
So there was something like that's where my mind went with that. And I, because yeah. I do think there is a way. It also went to Natalie Karn's book, Motherhood, uh, which I don't mm. know if you've read. I think Chris has read, but. Uh, I, no, I, I haven't read it. Yeah, it's, it's, she speaks of in similar her. Anyway, it's uh, it it made me appreciate your some of your language, but I, I was just curious if you. I mean, I I also I don't totally know how to put my finger on it, but I I ha- have a 13 year old son, and want him to grow, to become a man who will do these things to reach out across the distance for the sake of communion, and. Yeah, I feel a little lost or very lost most of the time. And I was just curious as you think about, um, if you have any thoughts on this way of thinking about masculinity, what, what it looks like to, to boys that are moving through adolescence into adulthood, um, or, or for, for men that have like missed this. Anyway, just any thoughts on, the process of instilling this and, and, and nurturing something mm-hmm. like this. Uh, cause he has so many, there's so many options available to him on what sort of man he wants, he could be. Uh, cause there's, you know, he has the internet, um, or access to the internet. Yeah. Um, so I know that was a bit of a rambly, a rambly, uh, sort mm-hmm. of open-ended question, but I just be curious if you have any thoughts on that. Um, yeah, in in a way, I'd like to hear a lecture from you on that because you're kind of further, yeah. you're fur, you're further ahead in the process of raising a boy. I, I I don't have one, although I don't know what the third one's going to be in February. Um, and when when I th- all all I can do, I think, in this is speak from my my own experience of of what I I knew as a as a boy. And what I think really helped me, um, and I mean the 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 presence of men who cared and were willing to relationally engage is the thing, um, in my experience. And I mean, I can I can name four of them who were ex- extremely significant for me and still are when I think of, you know, who who I am. Um, and so I, I guess it is displaying a, a posture as a father of someone who is, who is deeply relationally engaged and is seeking his good and is not checked out. Um, my, ma- many of my friends' fathers growing up came home from work every night and just sat in front of the TV and d- didn't engage relationally with them at all. That was, it might have been even been a dominant pattern. And so I guess showing something that's, that's not like that and having the way you speak about being a man have that language be primarily relational rather than, um, based in any kind of stereotype, which I, I know you wouldn't do. Um, but, uh, so, for instance, if this paradigm that I am uh, br- bringing out is um, what being a man is actually about, then I can look to my father and say that the most manly thing that I ever saw from him 
was that when I was five years old and he realized that I couldn't play sports and that I was miserable at every sports practice we tried, um, six or seven years old, um, he looked at me and he, and he, I, I, I looked at him and said, dad, I can't do this anymore. And he said to me, well, in this kind of flustered, you know, rural Pennsylvanian dad who doesn't know what to do with a boy who doesn't like sports way. Um, and he, he just looks at me and says, well, Philip, what do you want to do? And I just said, I want to go to the library. And, and then from that day on, twice a week, we went to the library instead of going to sports practice and I never hit a ball again. And he no doubt mourned the fact that he didn't have a son who he could throw or kick a ball with and who had no desire to do that. And even when he did throw the ball at me, I would miss because I was so short-sighted. Um, but that was his, I, I, I would say that is the most manly thing he ever displayed to me, um, was that posture of willingness to not make the paradigm that he knew of what a boy is um or should be the one that he forced upon me um and kind of invasively invasively crossed the distance between myself and him um by by forcing me into that mold um and so i i want to raise examples like that as like the paragon of of what it means to be a man um rather than anything else so i guess uh, the answer to me is, I guess, pre- presence, relational presence, and being very mindful of language around around the meaning of manhood, and to make that language primarily relational rather than based in achievement or um, any kind of you know stereotypical type stuff. So, does is does that at all at all helpful? Yeah, very much so. Thanks. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I'm a little nervous of being here in the front of everybody because um <laughs> I'm Yara from Brazil and I was trying to use the Google Translator to <laughs> make my question. And Ben told uh-huh. me that it's a good, like, that's all right about the question, so I will do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. Does it make sense, Ben? He said yes, so his fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, my question is, like, considering that we have been affected by sin, how can we work in a way that helps us look at each other with a redeemed eye and help each other as they strive to become a man or a woman in accordance with a divine vision of like a divine vision. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for your question. Um, I, I, I think that right, right now in, in, in our cultural like situation, it means not falling into one of the things is not falling into the ways of speaking about one another that are so, that are so common. And increasingly right now, that is for men who are, who are frustrated with women to assume that they're all against them. 
Um, and for women who are frustrated with men to assume that they're all toxic. Um, I think we need to have eyes that are looking for the good in one another first, rather than what um, our cultural moment is telling us is always present in the other. Um, and, and so that would, that would be one thing to always seek to be looking for the good in the other, especially the person of the other sex, rather than the things that you are constantly trained, trained to see, um, in the world we're living in now. And I, I guess the second thing would be to be seeking active partnerships between, between men and women, um, in every way so that the, the synergy that happens when men and women work together um is is present and so that we are encouraged by one another's unique giftings um so th- those those would be two ways um i i would encourage to to constantly have eyes for the good in one another and to seek ways to work with someone of the opposite sex um toward a common a common aim a common good any other yeah, a- any other ideas for that? That's a very a very good and, and broad question. Does anyone else have any other comments? Hi again, Philip. Yeah. Hi. This relates to the question to the question. Um Mary Van and Mary Van Lewin writes about a fallen tendency in women can be over-investing in relationships. Yeah. These books that came out years ago, you know, Women Who Love Too Much, um, or the pattern of um, mm. a woman who's a, a mother who sees her entire role in life, role, you know, but, but mm. basically her entire God-given responsibilities to her children, raises her children, um, and then the sort of pattern of empty nest syndrome where women can become menaces. They can become menaces to their children because they can't let go of them or they demand too much, too much from them, or they just haven't seen themselves as images of God, um, with calls to what Mary Van Leeuwen calls accountable dominion. Um, there's relationships and accountable dominion, which don't always, which, which can be different things. And that perhaps what you've been talking about is a tendency in men to a, a fallen tendency in men to, well, maybe yes. you call it a fallen, but <laughs> so I'm not sure where, what, what you would see as creation or what you would see as fallen, but an outside yeah. and, and, um, seeing maybe dominion as opposed to relationships as being something that they're called to cultivate. And maybe, I don't know. Yes. And maybe there's something of the fall in both men and women that we need to resist there, that women need to keep yeah. Uh, keep a, a broader sense of their calling. Relationships, yes, but maybe broader than relationships. I don't know what, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I, I can't imagine a book called Men Who Love Too Much. No. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't know, I don't know what the, what the book would be. And, and I, I remember hearing a, a, a while back a, a mother of, of two small children say, um, that she dreads the day when her children leave the house and she just thinks about it every day with dread. 
<laughs> and as a father of as a father of two young children, I thought I can't imagine saying that. <laughs> uh, um, so yeah, and, and I guess uh, Marty Mary Van Leeuwen would root that in in the the text in Genesis three that says, you know, your desire shall be for your husband, and you will, and he will rule over you. And that being a negative thing is that the woman the the woman's desire and capacity for for relational connection and desire for that will be taken to the extreme and then the man's um authoritarian nature will come in and rule over her in ways that are corrupting of her of her dignity um and so i i i see that almost as the original image of you know toxic toxic masculinity but also toxic femininity as well um is 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 rooted in that verse so yeah, I, I, I'm not sure how comfortable I am speaking in, you know, generalizations about, about women and men at this point in my, more about men than about women. But I think the, the tendencies that you pointed out are, are very real. Um, and that those aspects of the fall are, are very, are, are very present in us. And I get, I didn't get to the fall in my treatment of Genesis. Um, Abigail Favalli has a good treatment of it in, in, in the book here. Um, that is very much along those lines. Um, but I, I think that the, the fallen tendency in men would be to invasively, um, cross that distance or to only cross that distance to see what I can get. Um, and to not have the movement toward the other be one that is seeking the good and not one that is seeking the other's flourishing. I, I wonder, I, I don't know if, I, I wonder if women relationally don't, um, are, are not tempted by that as much. There are, or there are other ways in the relationships get corrupted, but that kind of domineering, I'm going to move in to take what I want or to rule over is, is not so, is not so present. It, it is David Brooks in that, in that issue of comment, um, uh, that just came out with uh, it was the gender issue. He has a really good article that they titled "The Feminine Way of Wisdom." Um, that was about uh, Eddie Hilsium, Simone Weil, and um, someone else um, speaking about how all of all of these these women who were living during um, the Holocaust had these had this um, profound shift in their life that was related to attentiveness to other people. Um, and just, and seeking the good of the other. And they wrote profoundly about that. Um, and he, he, he drew the conclusion at the end that these were very feminine observations in that they were, you know, they, they were so deeply and richly relational. And something that, that John Paul says about the feminine genius, and I, I love this, that he, he he sees the the masculine and feminine genius as flowing from our capacities for motherhood and fatherhood, but that it's not limited to that biological level. And what he concludes from uh, the woman's potential to um to bear new life is that the the human person he says has been entrusted to woman, um in a very direct um, and profound way. 
Um, and something that he, what did he say? Yeah. And woman's genius is to be particularly attentive to the human person in whatever realm of her influence. Um, there's a genius for that in women, um, according to him. And, uh, in that, uh, Prudence Allen uh, talks about how in his later encyclicals toward the end, uh, end of his time as Pope, he was writing about women entering um, the working world and that kind of thing. And he was very positive about it because he thought it would have a, a humanizing influence on the workplace. Um, seeing that it was um, the working world dominated by men had become quite dehumanizing. Um, he was convinced that if more women came into the workplace, it would become a more humane place. I don't know what he'd think if he were still alive, because I think that um, many women who go into the workplace think that they need to be like men um, and that it, it 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 perpetuates this environment of, um, yeah, uh, fallen male tendencies. Um, so th- those those are some reflections I, I, I've had about that. Um, I don't want to say women are relational and men are not. I think we're all called to be relational, but maybe women find it, women find it, um, have a genius for it. (laughs) I love that word, um, in general more than men do. So. Hi, Dick. Hi. Uh, it, uh, what I, I'm struggling with the very same issues uh, that, that we've been uh, coming up with. Um, I like the way you deal with Bali's ideas in the sense of she, she's frustrated that the feminists can't even come up with, can't say what a woman is. And yes. Said, Isn't it weird that feminism is such a huge movement and they can't, and they're threatened by the idea of defining what a woman is. She does define woman in, in a I think that's where you drew your your definition of a man. Yes, yeah. Has the potential for raising and creating new life from within. uh, Yeah. From without. What she and I I read it too long ago to have a close memory, but I I don't remember her going on and saying from that the biological connection, uh, the shape that men and women might image God differently. That's where you've gone tonight. That's where a bunch of us say, wait a minute, wait a minute. How do you say that without making moral norms of maleness that should be striven for, female norms for femaleness that should be striven for, men and women out of sorts because they don't match these. Now, the the complementarian, strong-form, right-wing Christianity does it in an evil way. But my question is, how do you do it at all in a generalizing way, without making moral judgments or moral norms that are suggested that are going to be cramping to men and women. I, I, as I see, just even when you describe what your father did, I'd say mothers mm. are fantastic at doing that. No, at, 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 at yeah. saying, oh, what you've been told to do is, it's all oh, screwed up, let's do what you want to do. Let's do what, do what you're good at. Uh, so, yeah. So many of these things were very t- tense or, or very tender personal things. Men have done that. The different cultures are very different, different in yeah. terms of men and women doing are expected to do. So I'm nervous of, of having 
of saying there's a male, a predominant or generalized male way of imaging God and a, and a, and a female way of imaging God. I agree that it's, it touches biology, but I think it is a profound mystery how that happens. You can see uh, if a man does something, you can see, yes, he did it as a man. A woman does it. He, yes, she did it as a woman. It was, it was an expression of her female reality that she did it all the way down. Uh, and yeah. women are not women just when they're pregnant. They're women, you know, they're having life within. They're, they live life beside their, their husbands if they have children, uh, for years and years. And, and, uh, uh this, you see men that are very strong where women are, are meant to be strong. Women are weak where they're meant to be weak and where not meant to be weak and, and, and so on. So I see so much difference crossing over. I get scrambled. As I try and get a generalized, this is a male way of imaging God, and this is a female way of imaging God. Sorry, I was just going on. It's sort of what we've been driving at, but that's how it strikes me as a, as a dangerous uh, thing. But yeah. you said, "What if?" You see, you, you, I remember you. You said, "What if?" Rather, this is the way it is. So I, I wanted to say, this is a this is a danger that it's hard to avoid some of the bad things that we want to avoid in, in the, in the complementarian. So yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I really, I feel that. And I, that is why I went into, that's why I went, what if in this, in this second section, because I, there, there's a part of me that really wants to say more, but not too much. Because I, I feel like if we, if we, if we leave it at, we have we have to have some mystery in it but if we if we just throw up our hands and say that these differences um don't point to anything beyond their you know bio- biological you know beyond what happens in biology i i i think we're poised to miss something and yeah you, you what you there Okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Um, the way Favali puts it in her book, um, she talks about how, um, let me, let me get the quote here. Um, she says that, um, our bodies are speaking the language of symbol. And that our maleness and femaleness visibly express between, express the relationship between God and humankind. Um, and that our bodies carry the symbol of the loving union between Christ and his bride. Um, and that, you know, the, the whole thing about, um, a man shall leave his mother and be united to his wife. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. She insists that this does not mean, um, that, you know, men are, uh, like men are, are, are like God and women are, are lower than. She says that both of our, our bodies are speaking the language of that story in different ways. And she says it's a metaphor, not of the relationship, not of um, God or humanity in isolation, but it's a metaphor of the relation between God and humanity, 
told by two different bodies. Um, and so it's not there's a hierarchy being created. It's just that our bodies are telling are, are telling the same story in different ways. And I guess I'm, yeah. She she does speak about how fe- the the fem- female being shows um what it it shows us that humankind's power lies in receptivity to the life of God. And that the human being is created to receive the life of God and be transformed and let that love, that, that love bear fruit. And that's analogous to a woman's role in procreation. She doesn't speak about uh, much about the, uh, what the analogy of the man's role in procreation is because that's harder to speak about. But this, this out, this outside quality is, ca- is capturing my imagination in, in, in some ways. And I'm not sure how best to speak about it yet, but I, I do want to speak about it. <laughs> um, and that's what I, I guess I'm trying to do. So, but I, I take, I take good caution, uh, with your comment though. I actually emailed her about this, um, and asked her what I should read. Um, and she gave me a few recommendations. And then she said, uh, that she's doing two semesters of guided readings, uh, courses at Notre Dame with her students on this topic, um, in preparation for writing her own book on this topic. So wait for her and then, uh, see what she says. <laughs> Cause I'm sure it will be very thoughtful and much more complete. <laughs> Does anyone else have another, another question? Yeah. I, oh, three minutes. Never mind. <laughs> I'll email you with my question later. <laughs> okay, Ben. Well, thank thank you all for listening. It's uh yeah, it's almost 10 p.m. for me, so it's good to see you all, and I hope you're having a very good term. Thank you. All right. See you all later. Bye-bye.